All right, we are lucky to have here one of my favorite Catholic authors. Robert Riley is a, like I already said, a popular author, but he's also the director of the Westminster Institute, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. He spent 25 years in government service. He taught at the National Defense University. He served in the office of the Secretary of Defense, where he was a senior advisor for information strategy. He participated in Operation Iraqi Freedom as a senior advisor to the Iraqi Ministry of Information. Before that, he was the director of the Voice of America, where he had worked the prior decade. And in the 1980s, he served in the White House as a special assistant to the president and in the U.S. Information Agency, both in D.C. and abroad. In the private sector, he spent time as the national director and then president of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. And he's written a multitude of books on the war of ideas, foreign policy, and also classical music. So, it is my pleasure to welcome to the stage Mr. Robert Riley. Uh, Tim, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure and honor to be with you this afternoon. And of course, I want to thank Father Newman for the privilege of appearing in his beautiful parish here. Now, I'm going to begin, by, by, by the way, can everyone hear me all right? Thanks. I'm going to begin reading to you a prayer. And I'd like to uh, get your reaction to it. Listen carefully. O oh God, I ask of you a perfect faith, a sincere assurance, a reverent heart, a remembering tongue, a good conduct of commendation, and a true repentance. Repentance before death, rest at death, and forgiveness and mercy after death, clemency at the reckoning, victory in paradise, and escape from the fire by your mercy, O mighty one. Forgiver, Lord, increase me in knowledge and join me to the good. What do you think? Any problem saying that prayer? No. Yes? No? Well, I just, this is the prayer that Muslims say on the Hajj in the seventh circumambulation of the Kaaba. And the reason I read it to you this afternoon is just to give you some indication of the spiritual thirst that is evident within Muslims for God. I've worked with Muslims for many years. I've seen the operation of God in their lives. And this gives you some idea of that thirst for eternity and mercy uh, that is within so many of them. 
So the first thing, of course, we would exercise in respect to any Muslims is respect and acknowledgement. For they are doing the best they can according to the lights that they have. Unfortunately, it is a diminished light. As you have heard from Father Alabadi and Daniel Ali. So respect. But the great Egyptian Jesuit, Samir Khalil Samir, makes the point respect, yes, of course, always respect, but also the truth. Never compromise the truth out of respect. And I say that because I will be referring to some fairly harsh truths today about Islam itself. Now, the title of my book is The Closing of the Muslim Mind. Now, the publisher didn't think the title was incendiary enough, so we added the subtitle, How Intellectual Suicide has created the modern Islamist crisis. Please buy the book so I can upgrade my home security system. <laughs> now, where did I get that? Uh, where did the subtitle come from? Intellectual suicide. It came, in fact, from a Muslim from the great Fazlur Rahman, who was uh, a scholar who became uh, the Minister of Education in the first Pakistani government after Pakistan split from India. But because he saw the kind of educational reform that was necessary in the Muslim world, he was not welcomed and he had to flee Pakistan and he ended up teaching at the University of Chicago. Indeed, teaching some of my friends who earned, earned their PhDs under him. So this statement comes from Fazlur Rahman. I'm going to quote it to you. A people that deprives itself of philosophy necessarily exposes itself to starvation in terms of fresh ideas. It, in fact, commits intellectual suicide, unquote. So that's the origin of the subtitle. Now, we're going to talk about that intellectual suicide and how it took place. How many of you have read the Regensburg lecture by Benedict XVI? A couple of hands. Well, your homework is you should all read it. Uh, you know, only a small portion of the Regensburg Lecture was about Islam, but it disproportionately gained a huge amount of attention. In that great lecture, Benedict spoke of the de-Hellenization of Islam. Of course, he was talking about the de-Hellenization of the West as well, but the de-Hellenization of his Islam. What did he... I think many people were probably puzzled by this term. 
He spoke, of course, of philosophy, of reason as the gift of the Greeks, therefore Hellenic. But if Islam was de-Hellenized, it must have at some point been Hellenized. And that is what I'm going to talk about today, that brief period of Hellenization that took place, and then the catastrophic de-Hellenization that robbed Islam. And by Islam today, I'm going to be very specific. I don't mean Shia Islam. I mean Sunni Islam, which is the vast majority of Muslims. 85, 90% of Muslims are Sunni. <clears throat> Now, it usually takes me at least three hours to lay out the basic philosophical, theological, metaphysical, and epistemological issues. And I'm happy to say I'm free till vigil mass at five. How about you? <laughs> No, Tim is shaking his head. Don't do, don't do that. Well, the other way I, I can compress uh, basically the entire thesis into one dense sentence. Islamism is a spiritual pathology based on a deformed theology that has produced a dysfunctional culture. So spiritual pathology based on a deformed theology that has produced a dysfunctional culture. Well, that's about it. Any questions? Okay, well, let's, let's step through some of this material. And before I get on to this great drama on the Hellenization and de-Hellenization, I'm going to take you, uh, how many of you have read the Quran? Well, more th that's, that's impressive. Then you know what a difficult book it is. Uh, it's not a narrative. It's, it's, it contains stories, mainly taken from the Bible, but it itself is not a story. And you know it's organized in 114 surahs or chapters just by length, longest to the shortest. Go figure, right? Uh, but let me just very quickly uh, go from something all of you do know, which is the Bible, to something that you, you don't know or you don't know so well, which is the Quran. Just to give you some idea of the fundamental differences in the revelation. Now, the first time reading the Quran, one thing jumped out at me and struck me uh, very greatly, dramatically. Of course, there's more than one count, account of creation in the Quran, as the Quran is apt to repeat itself in slightly different, varied ways. Nonetheless, in any account of it, you will note that man is not not made in the image and likeness of God. And of course, we read in Genesis 
that we are made in the image and likeness of God. And this is reaffirmed throughout the Bible, Book of Wisdom, for God formed me to be imperishable. The image of his own nature he made me. And then in the New Testament, St. John makes the extraordinary statement, now we are children of God. Children of God? We have a familial relationship with God? You know, of course, that our Lord spoke Aramaic, and when he was asked how should we pray, he gave us the Our Father, but it's really not uh, Our Father. The, the word in Aramaic was Abba, far more intimate, maybe closer to Daddy, our Daddy who art in heaven. Can you imagine the level of intimacy that suggests for finite man and this infinite God who made and sustains him? Never before in history was such a thing suggested. And then, of course, we have this extraordinary statement, quote, what we shall be later is not yet clear. But when we see him, we shall be like him for we will see him as he is. Like him? Like whom? Like God? We shall be like God? And then, of course, in the Mass every day, in the offertory, you hear, by the mingling of this water and wine, may we come to share, share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. Share in the divinity of Christ? I cannot possibly express to you how shocking Muslims find what I just said to you. That we should in any way think that we are like God, that we are made in God's image, that we are going to share in his life, is the highest degree of blasphemy to a Muslim. Muslim man is not made in God's image and likeness. There is an infinite distance between Allah and man, unbridgeable, and this Allah is unknowable, unaccountable, who reveals in his Quran his commands, not himself. Act of unbelievable presumption on the part of a man to say he is in any way like him or that he has a familial relationship with God. This is a scandal to Muslims, just so you understand. It's the unbridgeable, this enormous unbridgeable gap between God and man in Islam. Now, the second thing that you would notice that would set off an alarm when you read the Quran, and Daniel Ali referred to this uh, last night, there's no original sin. 
there's the first sin, and then the second and third, and Allah being all forgiving and merciful may, may forgive it or he may not, and then you simply move on. But there's nothing in, in, by nature that distinguishes the first from the second sin. There is no catastrophic dislocation in the relationship between man and God as a result of that first sin. Now, of course, in Genesis, there is a catastrophic dislocation. Man is not only expelled from the garden to now suffer death and labor and pains of childbirth, etc., but he is completely bereft. He is offended, an infinite being, Yahweh, through his disobedience, and he has nothing within his means to offer Yahweh in expiation for this sin, this sin which has dislocated the entire order of creation. St. Paul said, all creation groans as a result of this original sin. So the situation looks pretty hopeless for man. Until later in Revelation, God says, in effect, you can't do this, but I can do it for you. I will send someone who will do this. And therefore, through the Old Testament, we have the repeated prophecies of who this person may be and what they may do. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the beginning of salvation history. The prophecy of the Messiah of the Savior who is going to restore this relationship between God and man. This is also the start of history as we understand it now. Something with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Linear history instead of the circular history in which ancient man was looped, where everything just keeps repeating itself uh, for an eternity. So the history we understand today is a secularization of salvation history. The whole idea of progress is a secularization of salvation history. Now in Islam, there is no promise of a Messiah or a savior to restore the relationship between God and man because there was no relationship in the first place. There was nothing to restore. As a consequence of which, there is no salvation history in Islam in the way in which I'm speaking of it. As a consequence of which, there was no salvation history to secularize into the modern notion of history, of progress, of a narrative of things. That was absent from Islam. It didn't even write its own history until Westerners began writing its history for them, and then they jumped in. As a, as a consequence of this, there is a very different understanding of time within Islam than there is 
within Christianity or the West. They perceive and experience time differently. <clears throat> All time to them is sacred time. not narrative time, not historical time, as a consequence of which all things are present to them simultaneously. Now you wonder why the heck is ISIS going around Syria and Iraq uh, destroying Assyrian artifacts and human-headed winged bulls? with jackhammers and explosives. Why are they blowing up these ancient Assyrian statues? And they'll tell you, well, that's because they're idols. It's, they're, you know, they're blasphemous. We feel like tapping them on the shoulder and saying, I, don't you know that no one has believed in the gods of Assyria for three, 4,000 years? that these are just now historical artifacts, you can let that go? No, no. It's as offensive to them as if it were taking place today. See the different sense of time? And what, of course, do they call um, our troops in the Middle East? What? Crusaders, sometimes crusaders, more often Romans. Yes. Romans or Byzantines, because back in the seventh century, uh, that's what they called the Byzantines, Romans, as it was the continuation of the Roman Empire. And uh, therefore, our presence there is also simply continuous with that. And uh, so we're referred to in the jihadi literature as Romans. You see, that's their. They're in this ahistorical sacred time, not in real narrative historical time. It's a big difference when you're trying to apprehend reality. Well, um, let me move on here and uh, offer you another quite interesting thing in the Quran in the creation account. Who names the animals in Genesis? Adam. Who names the animals in the Quran? There's a good student of the Quran. No, Allah. Adam doesn't name the animals. Allah names the animals in the Quran. Now, this may not seem to strike you as a matter of great import, but it is. Adam names the animals, and they are the names he gives them. Naming things is what makes reality intelligible to us. It's the power of our reason to apprehend reality through naming. Can you tell what anything is for which you don't have a name? No, because you don't know it until you've named it. So naming is this essential property of reason to apprehend reality 
through naming. If you cannot name, can you know? So Adam has this power of naming in Genesis, but in the Quran he does not. What happens after this episode in the Quran? There's a little dust up between the angels and Allah. They're complaining to him, why did you make this man out of a clump of mud when all he's going to do is cause mischief in your creation? So they're challenging Allah. Allah's not too pleased. So he says back to the angels, in effect, oh yeah, if you're so smart, you tell me the names of the animals. And the angels respond, oh you who know everything, know that we do not know the names of the animals. We only know what you tell us. So these pure spirits have not the rational faculty of apprehending reality independent of what Allah tells them. They only know what he tells them. What does that mean? All they know is revelation and nothing outside of it, nor do they have any capacity of coming to know reality independent of revelation. Keep that note in mind as we progress through the intellectual struggle I'm going to describe to you in 9th century Baghdad. One other little thing I might uh, mention to you is a very interesting contrast between Mohammed's encounter with Gabriel and Mary's encounter with Gabriel in Luke. Now in the Quran, this presence, this uh, that Muhammad has an experience of is uh, crushing. He feels that his rib cage is going to be cracked and that he's going to be crushed to death. And he first thinks that this presence is demonic. And it tells him to write. He says, I can't write. He goes through this again. He goes through it three times. Each time he thinks he's going to be crushed. Finally, he's told, recite. And of course, that's what the Quran means, the, the recital. Now, people who observed Muhammad when he was receiving his so-called revelations would note that he would fall into a kind of stupor and you know, foam at the mouth. In other words, there's, a, there's some possibility he had epilepsy. But in any case, he was in a trance. His rational faculties were suspended when he's receiving these so-called revelations. This great German theologian, Gerl Falkowitz, whom I had the pleasure of uh, meeting uh, a few years back, much beloved by uh, Benedict XVI, made this wonderful contrast. 
Now, what happens when Gabriel appears to Mary? Well, she's startled, of course. And Gabriel says, do not be afraid. And then makes this extraordinary statement to her. And what is her response? How can, how can this be? In other words, Mary's rational faculties have not been suspended. She is not in a trance. She is completely alert. And only when she receives an answer from Gabriel that is sufficiently satisfactory does she then give a rational assent. Yes, faith, but also a rational assent. Let it be done according to your word. So one is a typical oriental um, style encounter with the divine when you're in a trance and your rational faculties are not operating. And the other is this Christian encounter with the divine when you are wide awake and your rational faculties are in full operation. Interesting contrast, isn't it? Now, quickly, I'm going to tell you just, um, and I know Daniel Ali and maybe Father Alabadi touched upon this, but uh, how do they regard their own revelation? And as you heard, they think it is the original revelation that uh, the Jews corrupted uh, the scripture. As it says in the fifth surah, they changed my word. The Jews changed my word. Cursed, cursed be the Jews forever for having the temerity of changing God's word, which you heard from Daniel Ali is, is an eternal word, right? It's existed co-eternally with God. So to change it, very serious. So then I gave it to the Christians. I did it all over again. <clears throat> and what did they do? They came up with a cockamamie idea that I have a son. I have no son. And let me tell you, if, there is, if Islam is about anything, it is about the denial of the Trinity and the denial of the Incarnation. Islam is almost more a denial than it is an affirmation. Repeated ad nauseum, I have no associates. What does that mean? I'm, all, I'm alone, I don't, there's no Trinity here. As a consequence of which, I have no son. Jesus appears in the Quran, uh, you know, far more often than Muhammad. And he almost invariably says to Allah, I never said that. Oh, I would never say I was your son. No, no, I would never say such a thing. The first written, the first extant written record of Islam is on the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. At the base of the dome are the uh, Arabic inscriptions. I have no associates. That's what Islam is about, the denial of the Trinity and the denial of the Incarnation. OK. So Muhammad then says, I'm going to do it one last time. Here it is. I mean, Allah says, through Gabriel to Muhammad. I'm going to do it one last time. Here it is. Here's, here's the original revelation before it was corrupted. And this last time I'm going to do it. So you're the seal of the prophet, right? 
Uh, please understand through all this that Muslims think that we're all Muslims. No, it's called the Deen al-Fitra, the, the religion that is natural to man. So Adam was a Muslim, Abraham was a Muslim, Moses was a Muslim, Christ was a Muslim, and then they were, uh, you know, then they were apostatized by someone or other. I was talking to a Catholic cardinal once, and I said, Your Eminence, you were born a Muslim, and then were apostatized by your mother. You should have seen the look he gave me. <laughs> but that's that that is Islamic doctrine. So if 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 someone so if someone converts to Islam, Muslims don't think it, it's a conversion, it's a reversion. Since everyone's a Muslim to, to begin with, and then this apostasy takes place. So it's uh, superseded, and, and this is the original revelation. Um, which they are enjoined to spread throughout the world. So that will give you a little picture of uh, inside Islam in terms of the contrast between the two. Now, what I'd like to do is, is go on to tell you about this extraordinary period in Islamic history in the Middle East during the Abbasid Caliphate in the first half of the ninth century when Islam began absorbing Greek thought, Greek philosophy as philosophy. Al-Kindi was the first Arab philosopher in the, in the first half of the ninth century. And then in the first school of Islamic theology called the Mutazilites, which was a rational school of theology. Islam, of course, encountered Christianity in the large parts of the Byzantine Empire that it had conquered. And there were centers of Greek learning that survived within the Byzantine Empire, plus Christian apologetics was suffused with the influence of Greek philosophy. Muslims had to somehow justify their own faith in the face of the huge population of Christians amongst whom they lived. So they started developing their apologetics, which, interestingly enough, uh, very closely mimicked ours. Pay attention, this is the first school of theology in Islam. Now, let me give you just a quick uh, idea of what it taught. What is man's first duty, according to the Matazalites? Of course, anyone familiar with Islam would immediately say, well, it's to submit, right? No. According to the Matazalites, man's first duty is to reason. Why? Because God's existence is not self-evident. Therefore, one must employ one's speculative reason to consider the question of whether God does exist. And as you read the Mutazilite literature, you can see it's through the order of creation 
um, the harmony of things and so forth. There must be a creator. They reason to the existence of God. God himself, according to them, is reason. He is the source of the order in creation, which is rational, which is why we can apprehend it with the reason he has given us. So you see a little spark of the imago dei there, though, they, of course, they can't name it that. Now, the next question that would occur and did occur is, uh, okay, we've established there is a God. Has he spoken? And how do we judge the various competing revelations at hand? Uh, what do we use as a criterion for the validity or invalidity of these revelations? And once again, the answer was your reason. They read the Quran and discovered there are some contradictory things in here. It says God has a throne. He has hands and feet and eyes. This can't be, and of course, at that time, many Muslims sort of at the street level believed uh, the Quran very literally. But the Mutazilites said, well, this can't be. God can't have a literal a throne and, and feet because he's, he's a pure spirit. Pure spirits can't have feet. So this is offensive to reason. Therefore, it must not be meant literally. It must be meant metaphorically. Therefore, if you find something that is against reason, you use your reason to bring it into accord with reason. That's a clear signal you're not meant to understand it literally. So your first duty is to reason. And through your reason, you can apprehend what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is unjust. And because you have free will and you are given this rational faculty to discover morality, you have the obligation to do what is good, to do what is just. And this isn't just true for Muslims, it's true for everyone. Because everyone has this gift of reason. Everyone has free will. What's revelation for then? Well, it's for things that you couldn't know for, through your reason. I mean, it's reasonable that you would be required to pray, but how would you know that you're supposed to pray five times a day? Or in which direction you should pray? So that, that is in revelation. But what's in Revelation has to be reasonable, right? Does this sound familiar to you? Yeah. This is the Islam nobody knows because it was extirpated. And indeed, the next school of theology that arose within Islam was called Asherism or after al-Ashari, who had been a Mutazilite. He turns against it, and he denies everything that the Mutazilites had asserted. The Mutazilites were known as the people of God's rationality and justice. Because God gives you, through your reason, the means to know right from wrong and justice. Since you have free will and can choose between those two, you will be rewarded for doing what's right and punished for doing what's wrong. Again, very familiar, right? Now, the 
Asherites did not think of God as rationality and justice, but as pure will and power. Unbound by anything, including his own word. They denied that man through his reason can know the difference between right and wrong. Man is incapable of that. Well, how is he to know the difference? Only through revelation. You see, we're back with the angels in the Quran. You can only know what I tell you. And only through revelation, through the Quran and the Hadith, through Sharia, can you know the difference between uh, what is just and what is unjust. How is that established, by the way? It's whatever God tells you. Right is the rule of the stronger. And God is the strongest. So whatever he says... That's it. Now, is God under any obligations to reward those who obey and punish those who don't? No, he's not. And so the Asherites would say, Allah may send to hell those who have obeyed him and send to paradise those who have disobeyed him and no one can gainsay Allah. Because he can do anything. He's not bound by anything, not by his own word. Now, how is it that you can't know the difference between right and wrong? You know, there are two ways to close the mind. One is to say it's incapable of knowing anything. And the other is to say there's nothing to be known. And this form of Islam... Under Asher, have I spoken too long, Father? I covered the microphone. Up here, yeah. Can you not hear me in the back? You can't hear me. Oh, dear. Okay, I'll start over. Can you hear me now? No, because, oh, you can. I mean, the whole afternoon you've been unable to. You're afraid I will go back, aren't you? Take it from the top. Take it from the top. Well, mass isn't for three hours yet, so we're doing we're doing fine. Uh, can you still hear me? Yes. Okay. So the Asherites said you can't know the difference between good and evil. God is pure will and power. Now. Uh, Aside from the fact that your reason's corrupted by your self-interest, uh, you can't know anything because there's nothing to be known in this respect. Things have no natures. Uh, you can't say that the tree has the nature of a tree and the acorn grows into the oak because that's the nature of an oak tree. That would be, guess what? Blasphemy. Within this school of theology, by the way, which today remains the majority school of theology in Sunni Islam, God does everything directly. He is the first and only cause of things. 
the first and only cause. There are no secondary causes. There are no laws of nature because there's no nature. God constitutes reality directly in the following way. All things are composed of time-space atoms. And these time-space atoms exist only momentarily, instantaneously, and then they're obliterated, they're annihilated, and they're replaced by another set of time-space atoms. The time-space atoms are neutral. They have no nature. There's not an oak tree time-space atom. They have, they're entirely neutral. So what everything, anything is at any given moment is an agglomeration of time-space atoms directly willed by Allah to be whatever it is. Now, if, if I were to say, um, is this gentleman's green polo shirt going to remain a green polo shirt while I finish this sentence? And if you said yes, and I asked you why, and you'd say, well, it's the nature of the fabric and the way the light is refracted and all of this can be explained, it would be shirk. It would be blasphemy. The only reason that remains, it doesn't even remain what it is. Re reality is constantly being reconstituted by Allah. That green polo shirt has been annihilated and reconstituted innumerable times while I'm speaking, and it only seems to be the same polo shirt. Now, I see a few graybeards in the audience who may remember high eight films or the old sprockets and the way movies used to play because there would be the individual frames, right? And every frame was a still shot. And only when it moved around the sprocket did it create the illusion of movement. That's like this metaphysical school. There's only the illusion of continuity Whereas Allah is creating each one of these frames independently of each other, they have no relationship to each other other than God's will and his choosing to reconstitute them. So you think what, here you, do you think I'm, you see me moving my hand? Yes or no? Yes. Sure, you've all committed the sin of sure. That's an illusion. God has annihilated and reconstituted my hand innumerable times in a slightly different uh, place, to, and that has created the illusion of movement. But that's not what really happened. What's happening here, for instance? The microphone's working. No. Okay, what, we'll do it again. What ha what's happening here? Gravity. You haven't learned a thing. <laughs> Everyone who said gravity has again committed the sin of shirk. Blasphemy. You're associating something else with God. As if this law of nature could exist independently of him. There is no law of nature. It is God who put the pen in my hand. It's God who released my fingers. It's God who made the pen to fall to the podium. There's no such thing as gravity. The next time I do it, God may choose to send the pen up to the ceiling or sideways. 
No, seriously, there's no accounting what he may do. Because God acts for no reasons. God acts for no reasons. Therefore, you cannot understand what he's doing or why he's doing it. Because he has no reasons for what he does. He's pure will and power. Now, can you see through this metaphysical scheme, what happens is the comprehensible narrative of cause and effect in the natural world disappears. There's no way to understand things in the natural world without giving an account of cause and effect. And once you deny cause and effect, reality becomes incomprehensible. If you are looking for a reason as to why science was stillborn in the Muslim world, I think we have it. If there's no cause and effect, if there are no natural laws, you don't go about endeavors to discover those natural laws because it's impious. It's practically blasphemous to do so. And that's why South Korea by itself far outproduces the entire Arab Muslim world by many factors in terms of uh, scientific patents each year. This is really a closing of the Muslim mind. So this view is basically all miracles are natural and all nature is miraculous. So everything's a miracle, which is why you can't understand it, right? We understand something is a miracle if we've discounted all the natural causes that could otherwise give an explanation. And only after carefully examining the case to see that there doesn't seem to be any rational explanation, then you consider that it's a miracle. Well, the distinction doesn't exist within this form of Islam because everything's miraculous, and that's why it becomes incomprehensible. Albert Einstein uh, made a wonderful statement once. He said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. How is it that our minds can know external reality, grasp its principles, create antibiotics and BMWs or whatever. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. It's explained by Thomas Aquinas when he said, man can apprehend reality because it was first thought by God. In other words, it's a product of God's intellect. And since it was first thought by God, we can apprehend it by thinking. Thus, uh, Einstein's wonderful statement that the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that we that is that it's comprehensible. Now, a analogous statement from this school of Islam would go something like this. The only comprehensible thing about the universe is that it is incomprehensible. You see why? 
Now, in terms of morality, let's make this very clear. One of the great Mutazilite thinkers, Abdul al-Jabbar, said, it is obligatory for you to carry out what accords with reason, unquote. It's obligatory for you to carry out what accords with reason. This is straight out of Aristotle, and it could come straight out of Thomas Aquinas. It's wrong to do what doesn't accord with reason. What do the Asherites say? There is nothing obligatory by reason. So you're not obligated to do what is reasonable. And Al-Ghazali, the most famous Asherite, quote, no obligations flow from reason but from the Sharia, unquote. Right? So your mind can't tell you what's right and wrong. No obligations flow from your reason, only from revelation, only from Sharia. This makes life very, very different for Muslims. Again, Father Samir Khalil Samir said, as a consequence, Muslims suffer from perpetual moral adolescence. Now, if you're a Muslim and you're trying to figure out whether uh, something you're, you wish to do is right or wrong, uh, what can you do about that? How can you find out? You ask. Good for you. You ask. Because the principle of Islamic jurisprudence, this is a very famous statement. Every Muslim would know it. Quote, reason is not a legislator, unquote. Reason is not a legislator. In other words, don't come up with any moral laws or any laws through your reason because it doesn't have the authority for laws, including the moral laws by which you think you're going to live. Reason is not a legislator. By the way, does that give you any insight into why democratic constitutional rule never developed indigenously in the Muslim world? If reason is not a legislator, why have legislatures? You know, since man is not made in the image and likeness of God in this form of Islam, he, has, he is not sovereign. Man has no sovereignty. Allah has a monopoly on sovereignty. And that is why they find legislatures blasphemous. That's why Muslims are told in England when it's time for parliamentary elections not to vote because it's a form of blasphemy to vote because this has to do with man-made laws and only God is the source of it. He alone is sovereign. Okay, so what they do, they ask. And the consequence of, the, of course, you have to know because what you, you want to go to paradise and not to hell, right? So you, you want to find out. And unless you've spent your whole life studying Sharia, you won't know. So you contact an imam or a mullah or a qadi, a judge. As a consequence of which there is, and you get from them a fatwa, a ruling. As a consequence of which there is an enormous fatwa industry in the Arab world and in Egypt. 
hundreds of thousands of fatwas issued almost daily. Every religious institution, al-Azhar, thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of fatwas. Because everything a human being could conceive of doing is classified within Islam in one of five ways, from halal to haram. So what classification uh, does your uh, proposed behavior fall into? There are live fatwa call-in lines, where for an extra charge from the phone company, you get to talk to an imam and get a fatwa. There are live fatwa TV shows in Egypt. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, these coming from Father Samir. Um, a woman is in her bath. There is a dog in her apartment. Can she get out of her bath? I see the tension building. <laughs> What's the problem? So the answer is, a dog, of course, is an unclean animal in Islam. Uh, the answer is, if the dog is a male, you can't get out of your bath. If the dog is a female, you can. Uh, a commercial launderer, a woman is bringing me her clothes and she doesn't wear the veil. May I do her laundry? You know, things like this. It goes on and on. Um, a woman walked by while I was saying my prayers. Do I have to repeat my prayers? Well, of course you do. Um, I don't have to explain that, do I? You're all, you're all, you're all on top of that. I'll, I'll give you one uh, last example of this so you can grasp the full absurdity of the situation. This is uh, a few years back in Egypt. The head of the Hadith department in Al-Azhar was asked uh, to give a fatwa on this problem. Now, I think someone explained to you that Hadith or the Sunnah are the second most authoritative source of revelation in Islam. After the Quran, it's the Hadith, and there are huge collections of Hadith. So here is the, the question. A, a male office worker asks, my profession requires me to be alone with a woman who is not a relative in an office for some periods of time. Now this is, this is haram in Islam. So he asks, is there anything I can do to uh, regularize this situation and still continue my work? And so the head of the Hadith section answered, yes, there is. If the woman breastfeeds the man five times, that will establish a familial relationship uh, between you, and you may continue your work in the office alone with her. Now, much to the uh, credit of the Egyptian people, there was an outcry over this. And the head of the Hadith section was, was made to withdraw his fatwa. But it popped up a couple years later in a slightly different form 
in Saudi Arabia. I guess in an effort to show how advanced and enlightened they are there, uh, that fatwa said, well, the woman doesn't actually have to physically breastfeed the man. She can use a breast pump so long as he drinks the milk. Now you're probably wondering, where are they getting their material? You know, where, is, where is crazy stuff like this coming from? And it's coming from the Hadith. And in fact, I've read that Hadith in at least half a dozen different versions where a, a widow who is raising an orphan male uh, asks for Muhammad's help. And the, she says, my, my uh, adopted child here is reaching puberty and I don't want to have to go around my house uh, veiled all the time. You know, is there any way I can do it? And so that's what Muhammad told her to do, and then he laughed. Apparently his sense of humor did not convey into the contemporary times. But do, do, do you see where we're, what's happened here? Do you see the problem? Now, there was the great Caliph al-Mamun, the greatest exponent of Greek thought in the history of Islam. He's the one who created the House of Wisdom that undertook the great translation efforts of the Greek texts into Arabic. Of course, they were first in Syriac, then in Arabic. Uh, he sponsored the first Muslim philosopher, Al-Kindi, who still a joy to read. I like reading Al-Kindi. And he, of course, uh, supported the Mutazilite school of theology. Al-Mamun made it a state doctrine that the Quran, the, the Quran was created, that it didn't exist co-eternally with God. He made, it, he made free will a state doctrine against the predetermination that was rampant in the other forms of Islam. Right? This is the Hellenized Islam you probably don't know about. This was maintained for the rule of three caliphs following al-Mamun, and then under Caliph al-Mutawakil, it was reversed. And Mutawakil banned the Asherite school, I mean, sorry, the, the Mutazilite school, and the Mutazilites had to run for their lives and their books were burned, and the Asherite school became the dominant school of Sunni Islam. So the Asherites didn't win the argument. They gained the attention of the caliph who physically suppressed the Mutazilites, and that's how Islam was de-Hellenized. It was de-Hellenized by force. This was the catastrophe of the Muslim world. If you don't believe me, listen to the late King Hussein of Jordan, a great man. Now, King Hussein is purported descendant of Muhammad, so people should, Muslims should pay attention. This is one of his last interviews before he died. Question. Would you agree that the Muslim decline can be dated from the 9th century 
when Islam missed the chance to become the religion of reason and moderation by crushing the Mutazilite movement. Would you agree that the Muslim decline can be dated from the ninth century when Islam missed the chance to become the religion of reason and moderation by crushing the Mutazilite movement? King Hussein answers, that is essentially correct. And we must do what we can to change that now. So there it is. And this leaches into contemporary life in the Muslim world in very uh, real ways. I met a young Kurdish fellow uh, from very famous uh, smuggling family in northern Iraq. We were discussing these kinds of issues, and he told me that he went on the Hajj with a very pious friend who was possessed of all of these Asherite notions. And as they're going around the Kaaba, the uh, pious friend uh, reaches up to touch the famous black stone. And it was cool to the touch. And he says to my Kurdish acquaintance, look, under the blazing hot Saudi sun, the black stone is cool. This is a miracle. My more skeptical Kurdish friend touches the black rock. That's interesting. It is cool to the touch. So he starts going around the Kaaba until he finds a set of stairs at the bottom of which is a refrigeration unit. <laughs> so he takes his pious friend down there and says, look, see, this is why the black stone is cool. What was the pious friend's reaction? Outrage. Outrage. It was a direct assault upon his theology. Now, if you read uh, accounts in the Muslim press about natural disasters, uh, they are never natural disasters because there's, there's no nature, remember? So they're, they're all being done directly by Allah. So you can imagine when Katrina hit, Allah is punishing the materialist, atheist, sex-obsessed United States. Or when the tsunami hit Indonesia and India, that's the season when people are drinking and fornicating on the beaches. So Allah sent the tsunami to punish them. I went to one Muslim website and they had superimposed over a satellite a photo of the tsunami, the Arabic script for Allah. And it fit perfectly. So they said, see, the waves spell Allah. Allah is directly doing this. That's, that's how they have to understand things. Which leads, of course, to unbelievable conspiracy theories in the Muslim world. Since they have not rational explanations for what's happening, it, it's always a, it's, it's, Allah does it for some reason involved with some conspiracy. Uh, now, what, the, uh, those of you who know the Middle East well uh, may be acquainted with the seatbelt problem. 
Saudi Arabia and places like that. What's why? Why is it so hard to get people to wear seatbelts? Well, if your time has come, which is foreordained by Allah, the seatbelt is not going to save you. And if your time has not come, well, then you don't need to wear the seatbelt. Therefore, our troops who are training um, Iraqis and, and others in the Middle East, to, you know, you've got to wear your Kevlar vest. That's tough when it's, you know, 115 degrees out, you've got to put on your Kevlar vest, because the reaction is, well, if my time has come, the Kevlar vest isn't going to save me, and if my time hasn't come, why should I wear the Kevlar vest, right? So you can, you can go through this uh, ad infinitum. I, I'll just close with one other. You all know about Boko Haram in Nigeria. Boko Haram means, you know, no Western education. So here was the, the, the former head of Boko Haram uh, who was uh, killed by Nigerian forces in 2009. But this is it. Look, get this. Quote, there are prominent Islamic preachers who have seen and understood that the present Western-style education is mixed with issues that run contrary to our beliefs in Islam. For instance, okay, he says, like rain. We believe it is a creation of God rather than an evaporation caused by the sun that condenses and becomes rain. Like saying the world is a sphere, if it runs contrary to the teachings of Allah, we reject it. So it's not as if this man doesn't understand the scientific explanation of rain through evaporation and condescension, a, a condes condensation, it's that he must reject it for theological reasons. You see, reality goes. And therefore, they behave irrationally. The reason I started on my study of Islam, which, which lasted for 10 years before I wrote this book, was seeing the first video of Osama bin Laden after 9-11. And in the video, he quotes his spiritual mentor, Abdullah Azam, who said, terrorism is an obligation in Allah's religion. Terrorism is an obligation in Allah's religion. Well, I listened to that and thought, I think I better study Islamic theology, which I did. That famous instant related by Benedict XVI in the Regensburg lecture of uh, a Byzantine emperor who had been captured by the Persians, Manuel II Paleologos, says to his captor that it is wrong to use force in the spread of religion. Why? Because it's unreasonable. But it can only be unreasonable if God is reason, if God is logos. If he's not, then there is no theological barrier 
to stop one from employing force and violence for the spread of one's religion. And that's the problem we are directly experiencing today through this dysfunctional culture founded on a deformed theology that is a spiritual pathology. Let me stop here and take any questions you may have. Thank you very much. <laughs>